0: So picking up from uh, uh, what Megan read a little before, this is coming from the book of Nehemiah, which is an old book in the Old Testament. And I just want you to just just listen. So Nehemiah 13, 23. In those days I saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, Half the children couldn't even speak the language of Judah. All they knew was the language of Ashdod or some other tongue. So I took those men to task, gave them a piece of my mind, even slapped some of them and jerked them by the hair. I made them swear to God, don't marry your daughters to their sons. And don't let their daughters marry your sons. And don't you yourselves marry them. Didn't Solomon, the king of Israel, sin because of the women just like these? Even though there was no king quite like him, and God loved him and made him king over all Israel, foreign women were his downfall. Do you call this obedience? Engaging in this extensive evil? Showing yourselves faithless to God by marrying foreign wives? One of those sons, Joadiah, the son of Eliashabib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanabalt, the Honor night. I drove him out of my presence. Remember them, O oh God, how they defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priests and Levites. All and all I cleansed them from everything foreign. I organized the orders of the service for the priests and Levites, so that each man knew his job. I arranged for a regular supply of altar wood at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Now, if you're not familiar with uh, ancient history or ancient Old Testament history, this is uh, from a really important time in Israel's life, long before cell phones. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is actually one of my favorite times in history, actually, one of my favorite parts of ancient history, but n- not so much. Uh, Jewish history so much. It's more like ancient history because the time of Nehemiah, we're we're talking like four, five hundred, six hundred years somewhere in there. I don't remember exactly. Kind of pre-zero AD, like talking like 500 BC. This is post-exile Israel, and this is a time when uh, the nation of Israel was in literal rubble, disrepair. If we go back and back and back, that David had instigated this kingdom. He had been chosen by God to lead. Israel to be the first real king besides Saul, the first real chosen king of, of God, for, of Yahweh to lead his people, and this mandate to kind of set up and establish a kingdom on earth. And he chooses Jerusalem, this beautiful fortified city. He conquers it, and he makes, makes his kingdom, and it's, and it's great. And if you look at the, a map, even today, this little piece of land that is known as Israel, David's kingdom is what ancient scholars and art, like archaeologists and people call a land bridge. You can look in, if you have a Bible, you can look in the map right now to just see the visualization of this. This is a long, 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 long time before planes and trains and automobiles and cars. And so this piece of land that David had conquered was a significant piece of land. It was a land bridge between Mesopotamia to the north and Egypt to the south. The Mediterranean on the West and the desert, the Arab desert on the east. So this little strip of land was enormously consequential to traffic in the ancient world. You couldn't get to Egypt without going through Israel. You couldn't get to Mesopotamia, which is the broader known world, without going through Israel. Really significant, really geopolitically significant. David sets up this kingdom. His son Solomon is kind of you know, not the greatest king in his final years, the kingdom splits up, and this sets off a chain of events that the kings of Israel who are residing over the kingship had a choice to follow Yahweh, to follow the law of Moses, to put trust in the invisible God, and he would protect them, to do the Deuteronomic thing, like if you you follow me, I'll bless you. If you don't follow me, you're going to be cursed. Once Solomon leaves his throne, he's built this temple, he dies, his sons fight over the kingdom, and they split it in half, like a loaf of bread, it cracks in half, and you have two kingdoms. David's kingdom is now divided, Israel and Judah. And from this point on, Israel, the kingdom of Israel, never once has a God-fearing king. Not once. Judah, in and out. Most of the kings were bad, but they had some good ones. Uzziah, Josiah, there's other, Hezekiah, there's some good ones in there, spattered about. about. But God says, with patience and love, he says, boy, if you want to play with the big boys, and you want to be like Egypt, and Assyria, and Babylon, and these Mesopotamian kingdom states, and you want to act like them, and take their gods, and live like they want to live, and you don't, you want to shirk the the promises and the call that I've given you to be a blessing to the world, then you're going you're to play with them and you're going to lose. I won't protect you. I won't stand in your way. And so Israel, year after year after year after year, decade after decade, king after king, just does not hear the call of God calling them to repent. A lot of the prophets, the minor prophets, the major prophets, this is what they're doing. Boy, you better stop what you're doing. Israel, stop, stop, stop. Or God's gonna remove his spirit from you. He's gonna stop protecting you. And eventually, Israel sacked by Assyria. At this time, Assyria was the largest empire in the world, the most ferocious, the most vicious, the most brutal. They were a war machine like the ancient world had never seen before. Assyria is part of Nineveh was an Assyrian city. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, to go to Assyria, and he didn't want to go because the Assyrians were so brutal and undeserving of of grace. And in that, Assyria sacks Israel, but can't sack Judah. They can't conquer the nation of Judah. God was still protecting Judah. Well, Assyria, as most empires rise and fall, Assyria doesn't stay in power for very long. Babylon sacks Assyria. And when Assyria falls, Babylon takes over all of its land, including Israel. And now the Israelites are being oppressed by the Babylonians. And now in in the story, the timeline, Judah has had too many chances, and the nation of Judah falls as well. And this is what's called the Babylonian exile. So if you know your Old Testament history, or if you don't, this is like a historical thing that happened in real life. Babylon conquers Jerusalem and guts it of its people and they're sent off. Where Assyria was like, we're going we're to throat stomp you into submission. Babylon was a little more civilized. They said, actually, we're going to take out all of your smartest people. We're going to take out your administrators and your scribes and your writers and your bankers and your builders. And we're going we're gonna to export them to our land, Babylonia. And they're going to live in our empire. And they're going to bring their culture and skills to us, for us. This is when you see Stories like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These people are in a foreign land. And while this is happening, Jerusalem is in literal rubble. The Babylonians destroy it. They leave it. And in so doing, they destroy Solomon's temple. It's a hugely significant event. The place where Yahweh is supposed to have lived where His presence dwells in the inner sanctum of the holy of holies in this temple has been destroyed, razed to the ground. Devastating. Well, then, as all empires go, Babylon is sacked by an even larger, more powerful empire, Persia. And this is where my love for ancient history starts to really come in, because there's a these are the same Persians that are like all over. Uh, kind of Greco-Roman history, Athenian history, Spartan history. But these Persians are even more civilized than the Babylonians. They had this kind of, uh, this way of doing things. They said, you know what, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have all the best and brightest in our capital. We're going to send you home. We're going to make peace with the, the people that we've conquered. We want good relationships with the subjugated class. And so, Nehemiah, Ezra, in the post-exile, they're the ones who lead the exiled Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild its walls, to build the second temple. And this is where you see some of those later minor prophets, Habakkuk and, um, and Micah and others that are like remembering the glory days and now they're living in this like ah, it's not what it was. And the people who have returned to Israel and Jerusalem are saying, wow, this is amazing. We're home. We're rebuilding the, the temple. This is incredible. And the old timers are like, yeah, you should have seen the temple before. This thing's a piece of junk. And what happens is Nehemiah comes to the scene and something really, I'll let you be the judge. I don't want to judge but there's a train of thought, a seed of a thought that Nehemiah brings into the picture. And he says, look, you're all married foreign women. You've been here a long time, you know, a generation of people now, and you've lost your way. You've lost Yahweh. You've lost the the law of Moses. You're not following. You're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're marrying other women from other nations, Which means you're following in with their culture, their idea of God, their morality. And don't you realize that's what got us in trouble in the first place? And so Nehemiah, now, with the priesthood as the the powerhouse, because there is no king, it's now the priestly class, the religious class, he says, you know what, foreigners, out the door. No intermarrying, no intermixing. Our Jewish culture, our our belief, our faith needs to be preserved. It had been hundreds of years now that the Israelites had been stomped on by foreign nations. Historically, this is called the March of Empires. And one of my favorite stories in this time is actually during the the life of Esther, where Xerxes uh, battles Leonidas uh, at Hell's Gates. It's called the Battle of Thermopylae. 300 Spartans holding off the Persian army. If anyone's ever seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. But it's a really great piece of history. And I love it, it's really fun. And this is when all this kind of stuff is happening. So it's a really, really consequential time in human history. Because these like, burgeoning empires are like, the language and culture and philosophy is just really starting to explode. But Persia, like all other empires, doesn't last. Alexander the Great sweeps across all of known Persia into India and conquers the known world and sets up his Greek empire. And with so doing, as we talked about last last week, this idea of Hellenization. Everywhere Alexander went, he brought his culture with him. He took his architecture, his language, his philosophy, his ideas about the gods, his idea of economy, his morality, and he plunked it all across the known world, and so basically, you could go anywhere in the known world and find a McDonald's. So I was talking to uh, Jesse and Judah this week, who are in Colombia, and we we're talking about kind of Colombian culture versus North American culture, and we we're having this great, great dialogue about it. And this is to just kind of give an example and to kind of prove the point, is they said a lot of teenagers, most teenagers in Colombia, had the same struggles as teenagers in North America. That's weird. We don't speak the same language. We don't have the same economic forces, vastly different cultures and histories. What is the thing that binds teenagers in North America to to Colombian teenagers? What do you think it is? Shout it out. Pardon me? I'm going to disagree. Something else. Something else. Something more basic. No, phone, technology. It's through social media, it's through the social, through human condition, technology. They said they go on TikTok, Instagram, whatever, they see the same things that our kids are seeing. They have the same pressures, the same whatever, the same exposure, and so they have the same problems. Mind-blowing. That is a, kind of this idea of Hellenization, that the world is becoming more homogenized with Alexander's push. But Alexander was haughty and arrogant, and like at 32 he died of a virus. And his empire starts to crumble and collapse. And who steps in in the coming years? The most mighty, robust empire the world had ever seen at this point, Rome. And this march of empires, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the people in Jerusalem, in Israel, had spent hundreds of years subjugated without a king, without a culture, and there are people around this time about, you know, just, just around the time that the, the Greeks had ceded to the Romans. There's this group in, in Jerusalem, in, in Jewish culture, in Jewish kingdom, whatever, said, we've had enough. That's enough. We don't want your naked games. We don't want your slaves. We don't want your coliseums. We don't want your aqueducts. We don't want your gods. We don't have a king, and we're operating differently, but we are going to separate ourselves from the culture. We want to follow Yahweh. We believe in our father Abraham, in the mandate that Abraham was given by God to be a blessing to the world. We don't have idols. We don't worship false gods. We follow the invisible God of one. We speak his language. We have his story. We, they believed they were the living revelation of God's presence on earth. His people, his chosen people. And they said, it's enough. Hundreds of years of other people telling us how to live, how to be, how to think, how to walk, Forget it. We're separating ourselves from culture. And the more Rome occupied them, and the more infusion of those religious ideas, economic ideas, cultural ideas, the more these separated ones pushed back. There's a Hebrew word for it. It's called Prussian. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But it means separated ones, just separated. This is the mainstream culture. We're not a part of it. This is the mainstream idea. We're not a part of it. Actually, we're going we're to take a step further. They said we're actually going to memorize this in our hearts and our minds. We're going to memorize the law of God on our heart because you've taken away our capital. You've taken away our, our temple. You've taken away our culture and our right to be free. But you can't take away my thoughts. You can't take what's in my heart. I'm going to put it right here. You're never going to get it. So they learned the tradition orally, memorizing. And these separatists were compelled to preserve what God had instated to Abraham and Moses and David hundreds of years before. Well, it got bad, it got real bad. It got to a point where actually some people in their own tribe started coming up with some real radical ideas. And they got really agitated. They said, you know what, it's enough that we have kind of the Greco-Roman influence. It's enough that Caesar is our quote unquote king. It's enough that most of our kingdom, Herod, and all that, it's just it's just smoke and mirrors. It's It's just a play. They don't have real power. We don't have real autonomy. But now they have people in their own tribe, in their own communities, coming up with some really crazy ideas. Blasphemous ideas. Ideas that were like insidious, malicious, eroding. And, the, and the, like the net that they were holding was like fraying in their hands. And the harder they grasped, the, the, the weaker it became. And it meant everything to them. They, they, they couldn't afford to lose another inch of ground, another inch of cultural ground, and they couldn't afford to lose it from their own. And they said, "You know what? There's too much at stake. Our religious freedom, our religious ideas, our, our actual liberation, the, the fickleness of their geopolitical situation is so so fickle, so weak that any time Rome could come down, just really just literally stomp them out. there's no room for error. They can't afford to lose any more power. And they can't afford to lose any more of God's favor. And they're so irritated by this group in their own tribe with these own ridiculous ideas. And so they caught one of these people. Early on, they thought if we, if we get at this thing early enough, we can stop its spread. These ideas don't have to disseminate to others and threaten the whole thing. And they, and they brought this person forward. And they asked him questions. And he gave them answers. And they, well, they, they asked him, like, where do you get off? What are you, what are you saying? Because it sure sounds like you're, you're tearing down Moses and Abraham. And you're really going against the grain here of what we're trying to do. And the man replies, he's like, not at all. The man says, I think you have it totally wrong. I think you've interpreted Moses and Abraham completely in the wrong way. And this man goes on to this really a loud explanation of, of his position. It says, you, you've misread this whole story. All along, you thought Moses was saying this? He wasn't. You thought Moses was doing that? He wasn't. You thought God was doing this here? That wasn't what's happening. This man says to these separatists, you've been going in the totally wrong direction. Well, this was an intolerable position. These separatists, the leader, the group of them, had organized by this point, and they're like, this is not acceptable. This has to be stopped. And so there was this anger and hatred, almost, I I dare say, involuntary. And they started yelling and hissing this separatist mob drowned this guy out. And now, in a full stampede, they dragged him out of town and pelted him with rocks. You can hardly blame them. You can hardly blame them. They were, they'd lost so much by this point. This was the matter of life and death in some ways, very literally. What else are they to do? The ringleaders took off their coats and asked a man named Saul to watch them. And as the rocks rained down, Stephen prayed, Master, Jesus, take my life. Then he knelt down praying loud enough for everyone to hear, Master, don't blame them for this sin. His last words. Then he died. Saul was right there, congratulating the killers. This is a story that comes from Acts, but doesn't start in Acts. It starts a long, 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 long time ago. And the man that was brought before was Stephen, chosen by the apostles to do the breadline. And when Stephen was confronted by the high priest and the leader of the Pharisees, or the separated ones, the Prussian, he gives a beautifully eloquent explanation of where Israel entirely missed the mark. They had a shared story, a shared theme, a shared foundation. Stephen wasn't disavowing his Hebrew, his Hebrew roots that Abraham is the father and Moses no, he just saw it leading to Jesus. Stephen says, actually, you saw the law in the flesh. He says it you know, better than I could ever say it. Stephen says, and this is coming to the end of his, his, uh, his preach, that doesn't mean that the Most High God lives in a building made of carpenters and masons. God doesn't live in a temple. He never did. The prophet Isaiah put it well when he wrote, Heaven is my throne room. i rest my feet on earth. So what kind of house will you build me? Wait a second, Prussian, separated ones, priests. You think God lived in that place? Isaiah, the prophet, saying that actually the heaven is God's throne, and he walks his feet on the earth. Where can I get away and relaxed? It's already built, and I built it, God says. And this is when the... the High priests and the Pharisees are just really like, boy, oh boy, you are like going at the core of our identity. They are furious. How dare you say that? But Stephen is very, very brave. He says, you continue to be bullheaded, callous in your heart, flaps in your ears, deliberately ignoring the Holy Spirit. You're just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet who didn't get the same treatment? Your ancestors killed anyone who dared talk about the coming of the just one, Jesus And you've kept up in the family tradition, traitors and murderers, all of you. You had God's law handed to you by angels, gift-wrapped, and you squandered it. What you were waiting for this whole time came to you gift-wrapped in the form of Jesus, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the walking law, the fulfillment of everything that Abraham and Moses ever had aspired to do was right there. You squandered it. You killed him. At that point, they went wild, a rioting mob of catcalls and whistles. But Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He hardly noticed. He only had eyes for God, whom he saw in all his glory with Jesus standing on his side. He said, oh, I see heaven wide open and the Son of Man standing at God's side. Yelling and hissing, they drag him out and they murder him. Stephen almost verbatim, quotes Jesus in his final days. That the Son of Man will come in the right hand, come from the clouds, and make the world right. Stephen is repeating his master. Saul is there, holding coats of the murderers. And how Luke describes Saul's response, that he's congratulating them, you can imagine his face. Smug. Smug. Arrogant, justified. Congratulations. You've stomped it out. A spark of a stupid idea you've stomped out. Hopefully, that's the end of it. And as Stephen is about to take his last breath, he follows again in his master's way. He says, Forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. And he dies. When we, kind of, when we wanted to like come into the book of Acts and kind of a church in transition, a church trying to find its way for the future, the New Testament church is often the place where churches go, where pastors go. They try to craft templates and whatever. And, you know, and it's kind of an impossible thing to do because you, you can't restart the same way. But there are things that really stand out. The book of Acts begins with the... Jesus is ascending and the filling of the Numa Spirit, the breath of God, in his followers. And they become new people. A correlation between Adam and Eve with the breath, the ruah Spirit of God breathed into them. The disciples of Jesus, those first 120 in the upper room, are like new creation, new humanity. And they're filled with Courage. And they're given clarity, and they go out into the world, and they start preaching about Jesus and how Jesus has kind of righted everything. And this message grows, and there's this spontaneous overflowing of the love and the joy of Jesus in the world. And radical things start happening, spontaneously, involuntarily. People feel compelled to share their stuff. People feel compelled to take care of strangers. Strangers. People go out of their way to look out for the widows on their street. People start eating together regularly in each other's homes without the need of obligation. In time, they start calling each other brothers and sisters, even though when they're not. In a time when family bond and lineage was, like, paramount, they broke with societal norms, and they said, actually, you're my brother, you're my sister. We're all adopted by God, the Father. A new humanity was, a new family was emerging. And it created new problems. Because no one had ever really lived like this before. I mean, you start kind of reaching across barriers of culture and language. And you're taking care of people that you've never taken care of before. The system that you had before is no longer working. And when something's not working, there's usually a problem. And so, there's discrimination in the food line because some people are getting priority over others because we all don't speak the same language. And and they're troubleshooting this, and they're doing it with, like, joy and forbearance. And it's shaking the foundations of the very culture in which all these people were living in. And I don't think they had really any idea what was happening and what was about to happen. And the Pharisees and the high priests say, Oh, boy. The ruling class, the elite, they say, wow, this is, we killed Jesus. We thought this was over. But it seems like Jesus is popping up everywhere. So let's kill him again. And they bring Stephen forward and they murder him. And he becomes the first martyr for the Christian church. The first person to die on behalf of Jesus. And he does so in almost the the exact same way. Brought child, unfairly accused. He speaks truth in love and forgiveness, and then he dies. And this story is, I've never approached this story this way before. And I don't know when it happened. I think it was Thursday. I was like, I wonder, I've always thought Paul the villain. Paul, Saul, same name. I always thought Paul was the villain in this story. He's the evildoer. He's the 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 the, the terrorist. And the New Testament obviously writes it in a way that we know where this story's going. And so we kind of like lean towards this guy, Paul. We lean to the Pharisees and the high priests, these ruling people, to say they're the wrong ones. But then I thought, wait a second. Who am I in this story? Who are we as the church in this story? Are we, am I, holding the cloaks of the murderers? Am I the persecuted or am I the persecutor? Stephen had crazy ideas. Ideas that shook the very foundations of culture. Core identity things, like deep, deep down, deep held beliefs. Things that brought about new situations and new problems that seemed insurmountable. And he was resisted because the people on the other side couldn't let go. And so rather than see, they took a hard stance and said, no. No more. I'm not changing, I'm not growing, I'm not seeing something new. And they respond in violence. And this is not a question that I I can answer. It's It's not a condemning question. It's an honest question. Where there's new things and new ideas and a new way of being and new problems, those things are often faced with resistance. Those things are often persecuted. When there are deeply established beliefs, deeply established practices and traditions, values that go deep, deep, deep down, and they're threatened, usually what happens is persecution. You become the persecutor. So I look at Paul with who would eventually, if you don't know the story, eventually Paul finds, Jesus shows up to him on the road, and Paul is this radical, life-changing, 180 transformation. And he becomes the missionary, not to the Jews, but to the whole world, the Gentiles. Spoiler, Paul dies for the cause. Paul lives a really awful life for the cause of Jesus. Because he's now, at that point, so convinced of the love of Jesus, and the transformational nature of Jesus in the world that he'll die for it. But at this point in the story, Paul had way too much to lose. He was holding on to so much about himself, about his identity, about his culture. There's no way he's letting that go on. And I kind of can understand where he's coming from. I, I kind of get it. When there's too much encroachment and, that, and you're getting too close to my core values, is getting a little bit too hard. It's the hardest thing in the world to not throw stones. So at this point in, in the story of Acts is really an interesting transition because Stephen is martyred. And then what follows are some really wild stories about people who come to Jesus. People that really shouldn't be in the story. Like people that are on the outside of this narrative. Who really don't belong. And it's a really interesting, really challenging, and maybe uncomfortable part of the unfolding of Jesus' gospel in history. And that's what we're going to get to in the next few weeks. And as we do, if you feel uncomfortable, if you feel tension, you don't have to throw stones. You don't even have to pick them up. The Holy Spirit, Stephen said it best, you, you have not listened to the Holy Spirit. It's not me, Amos. It's the Spirit of Jesus who will do the teaching and the illuminating. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you give us eyes to see. We thank you that you left so that you could give us your spirit, that we could be pneuma-filled with you. And in that, we are given a completely transformed view of the world, of people, of how to relate, how to act, how to exist in community. We thank you that you were the tip of the spear and you cut through time and culture to show us a different way to be human, a way that isn't barred by language and creed and socioeconomic pedigree, but it's bound by the love of our Creator. We thank you that you gave Stephen that perspective. We thank you that uh, you are still offering that perspective even to us now. And Jesus, as we move forward in our life individually, as a life in community, may we take pause to see where your spirit is leading and guiding and may you give us courage to know how to act and how to be so that we can be on your side of history. Thank you for these things in your name.